0: Hello and welcome back to the Politics of Race in American Film, podcast from the US Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Dr. Clive Nawonka, a Fellow in Film Studies at the LSC. In this episode, we are exploring Blackness in Hollywood and the ways Blackness is represented, produced and reproduced. We'll be looking at how changing perceptions of Blackness in Hollywood and cinema's role in its framing have contributed to a host of broad intersectional representations of racial inequality in recent years. We'll ask questions about how mainstream US films represent and quantify ethnic diversity. With this in mind, we'll be considering a number of films in this episode which speak to the different meanings, representations and politics of Trump, Obama and beyond. We'll be talking about the differing and opposing representations and meanings we can see in films such as 12 Years a Slave, Hidden Figures and Moonlight. We'll also consider how the films Green Book, Black Panther, *The Bill Street Could Talk, and Black Klansmen, which were all successful at the 2019 Academy Awards, spoke to the politics of race within Trump's America. Recent years have seen new films and documentaries address the contemporary politics of race, racism, inequality and injustice in America. Films like Monsters and Men, Blindspotting, Get Out, Sorry to Bother You, The Hate You Give, and The Thirteenth. And finally, we'll also be talking about newer films like One Night in Miami, Marani's Black Bottom, and Judas and a Black Messiah. These are films which depict iconic Black Americans and refer to significant Black political and cultural moments. To discuss and analyze the politics of race, film, and Hollywood representations of Blackness, I'm joined by three fantastic guests. Lamre Bakare, arts and culture correspondent at The Guardian, Cheryl Bedford, film producer and founder of Women of Colour Unite, and Sam Mejias, Professor of Social Justice and Community Engagement at the New School at the Parsons School of Design. As I've said, our final episode of the series looks at the current body of films that have engaged with questions of blackness and race in America during the Obama-Trump era, and what they tell us about the politics of race, both within the industry and more broadly, about American society. And how we see African American film or African Americans within film shaping and influencing the racial politics of the US. For this reason, we'll find that our discussions in the podcast move slightly away from some of the discussions that we encountered in other episodes that are much more focused on the text and the films themselves. And what we found in this episode is we are discussing much more around the context within the films are made the ways in which representations draw from other aspects of American society, and the politics and the social circumstances within which the films are produced and circulated. Okay, so welcome to my fantastic guests, Sam, Cheryl, and Lanwe. How are you all?
1: We're good. How about yourself?
0: I'm okay. It's been obviously a very, very uh, long period in lockdown. So I think we're trying to make the best of everything right now. But I appreciate you all uh, logging in from Wayra, around the country and the world, of course. So I want to begin by thinking about the broader politics of race in America from 2008 onwards. And um, I want to refer to a quote um, in the book, We Were Eight Years in Power, by... Tanahishi Cole from 2018. And as he says in this book, it is often said that Obama's presidency has given black parents the right to tell their kids with a straight face that they can do anything. This is a function not only of Obama's election to the White House, but of the way his presidency broadcasts an easy, almost mystic blackness to the world. The Obama family represents our ideal imaging of ourselves. An ideal we so rarely see on any kind of national stage. Cheryl, what kind of images did the Obama election and presidency symbolize and catalyze within the black American situation politically, socially and culturally?
1: Uh, I, I'm going to start with a, a, a story. My aunt, uh, Mary C. Curtis is a very well-known journalist, uh, here in the U S and, uh, Mary was there. And so she called my mother who happened to be alive at the time. My mom passed away in February, 2016. And so she called her the night that he won and my mother could listen in. And that moment for me, Uh, My mother was a civil rights activist. She marched on Washington. Uh, She marched a lot. First time, my first march, 1968. I was two, I was on her hip. It was during the Baltimore riots. And so for her, uh, watching it through her eyes, it meant everything. It meant everything. And that quote is correct. The fact that for the first time, we could say you could be anything and mean it. Uh, on the other hand, it's also solidified the fact that we have to be 10 times better, hundred times better, a thousand times better to be able to you know, make the same amount of money, get to the same point. And so I think the next presidency showed that. Um, so uh, for us, for me, uh, the daughter of a civil rights activist, uh, my uncle Thomas, who's a retired judge in Baltimore, Maryland, helped to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. So this is something that I have grown up with, right? The civil rights. Um, a lot of the meetings in Baltimore happened at my grandparents' house. When my uncle Tony was arrested, my grandparents hired Juanita Mitchell. Parent Mitchell was when uh, when he was alive was um, president of the national um, the Black Congressional Caucus. And so for me, it meant everything. It meant that all of the struggles, everything, that you could finally see something on a national stage that meant we could be anything. Now, I grew up, my mother telling me I could be anything, growing up with, you know, uh, civil rights activism, uh, I tell people, in my DNA. So I believed it, but I also knew how hard I had to work at it. Right, I knew that I had to be extraordinary. And I don't want to say extraordinary, because when you come, my mother would tell me when we would see, you know, guys on the street hustling and everything, and my mother would say, listen to them, because if they had the same opportunities that you had, meaning education, they could be CEOs and CFOs. And it was the first time we actually saw that come to fruition on a national stage, but like anything, the pendulum swings the other way. And though I think that there was this sense of pride, right? As far as the national stage, I think there are two very important things to remember. Number one, he was biracial, right? So we understood that there was this sense of, you know, sort of yes, black, but possible black, and all of that, right? So we understood that, even though he married a dark skinned woman, his children, you know, were brown skinned, all of that. So there was that. And then there was the second thing, which was the fact that the pendulum swings back the other way. And so I think as a black American, as a dark skinned, Black American. There was this pride during that time. But also, I think there was this sense of, oh, just wait. (laughs) Just wait to see what would come. And when the next presidency happened, everybody's like, oh, no, 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 this would never happen. I was like, "Mm -hmm." You know, because it it, it has always happened. It, It has always happened throughout history. So I, I think that there was that, um, uh, but don't get it twisted. We enjoyed those eight years, right? From from uh, him, the, the basketball stuff that he would do, so many things that have been stereotypic about our culture that we always knew was cool, all of a sudden everybody else knew it was cool. So that, I mean, as somebody who isn't just a Black American who also grew up in activism, I understood that, but I, I'm not going to, I enjoyed those eight years. I, I enjoyed it because even if you know that something else may happen down the road, we live in the present. And so I, I very much enjoyed that time period. And what I also really enjoyed was also watching young Black kids, right? That, that identifying with the president of the United States that was a turning point.
0: Interesting. You mentioned pride, enjoyment there. Sam, uh, you must've been in New York during that time. Was that a similar feeling for you? Pride? I was not
2: in New York, actually. Oh, yeah. I was here in London, yeah, yeah. So I, I woke up to uh, President Obama. Um, and uh, in fact, I think I spent the entirety of the Obama administration and the Trump administration in the UK, so um, I, I did miss quite a bit. But um, yeah, I think Cheryl makes really, really good points. Um, I think the thing that I think about when I'm thinking about Obama and his legacy is, is so, so my feeling is obviously that like Obama, his election performed like a politics of progress and reconciliation. And it kind of allowed us as Americans to claim this idea of a post-racial country, even though we knew it wasn't happening. We sort of, the, the sort of symbolism was really, really quite heavy. But when I think about like, um, whether his presidency actually catalyzed something politically uh, within Black America or just within America generally. I don't think it really did. I feel like most people ignored the sort of things that Obama did that were like actually really problematic from a human rights perspective. And I'm not trying to bash on him, but it's just to say that that I, I feel like, so like Pakistan and the drone War is an obvious example of, of things that Obama did where if you actually look at on paper, wow, this is actually really messed up. You did this as president. So we had these aspirations of progressive politics that didn't really materialize so for me he was a transformational president but like his cultural impact um, is far greater in terms of sort of projecting what we are and allowing the us to represent itself again after the horrible bush years as this sort of virtuous aspirational country where diversity actually is is meaningful so i don't know i mean i think I, I think cultural impact, huge. I think in terms of looking at the, the trajectory of the U.S. presidency and how it changes what we do as a foreign, as a global power
0: on the foreign stage, it, it hasn't really changed very much at all. Mm. So, Lanre, um again, I'm presuming you would have been in the U.K. when all this was happening. Um, as a fellow British Nigerian, um, I sat there watching the screen with my parents and feeling the same sense of euphoria and almost yes, we can-ism. Was that a similar experience to yourself?
3: Yes. So I'd, I'd followed the, the election campaign really closely. And then actually when he was elected, the night he was elected, I woke up to a Obama presidency, essentially. And that was the first day of me working as a journalist um, at the Manchester Evening News. So it was this kind of it was an amazing moment. I mean, I remember I was thinking back to it this morning, and like, what was it like? And I remember seeing Jesse Jackson crying. I remember hearing them playing Sam Cooke remember Obama kind of reciting the lyrics uh, and it was like this kind of incredible cinematic almost Hollywood moment where you know I think people wanted to believe well that's it you know racism's finished well done America you've you've cracked it you've done it and it was like you've gone from I have a dream to this moment somehow so like well done um obviously that's complete nonsense but like I feel there was this certainly at that moment this kind of idea of hope had just exploded not Obviously, I wasn't in America. Uh, and from from what the other guests have said, obviously that was going on there as well. But it definitely was happening in the UK, and people really wanted to believe in this. And I think it kind of tapped into a tapped into this really rich seam of a connection between the US and the UK, and this feeling that you know in the UK you you understand America through African American culture and through people like Obama, frankly, who was speaking a language that we understood. You know, talking about hope, talking about change. That's not that different from the civil rights. Movement, In fact, it's a the, it's the logical next step in some ways, obviously, as already been pointed out, maybe when he got into office, because of some of the compromises he had to make, he wasn't able to be, you know, the, maybe the kind of radical figure we'd hoped for. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a big moment, even if it was in in some ways pretty superficial. Um, but obviously, it, it, mattered, it mattered massively. And, you know, I certainly at the moment, at the moment when it happened just thought... You know what can happen next. It's it's up to him. He could take it any direction he wanted to. Obviously, in reality, it wasn't. It didn't go like that. Um, so yeah, it was exciting.
0: I think um, it's interesting that you mention uh, culture there because one direction it did go in, um, as you mentioned, these unifications between seen the US and the UK in terms of an appreciation for African American culture, and certainly one of the things that I witnessed, and of course many others did was uh, the growth of um, black culture uh, within America as some kind of vessel for this new uh, zeitgeist. And in preparation for um, a podcast, I was reading again uh, the book, The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America by Michael Eric Dyson from 2016. And in the book, he says, Barack Obama has finally made transparent the idea that our country cannot fully flourish without embracing a Black identity that is a quintessential expression of the American character. Now, thinking about that, Sam, what kind of ideologies did you identify, if any, and how Black culture, be it music, film, the arts, or literature, was responding to Obamaism? Well, I guess on
2: one level, like Black excellence, this notion of Black excellence feels like an obvious one. And I really remember like all of the kind of the sort of explosion of of joy after Obama was elected and like young Jeezy released that single, my president is black. And, you know, you had this sort of appreciation within the culture of like what, like again, back to the sort of co- like symbolism of what Obama represents. It's this ideology of like, we are a powerful people. We, you know, black ex, I, I would actually challenge aspects of this identity of what black excellence means and, and how it's yoked to this notion of white supremacy. Um, but that perhaps is a different conversation. But, you know, I, I think ideologically speaking, I, I would I would look at this idea of social progression, this idea that we're always moving forward towards progress, justice towards our supposed highest ideals as a nation. And I think that there's this aspect of, of this sort of American self narrative that that's kind of false, right? Like uh, up until the 21st century, we didn't have the kind of information ecosystem that we have now that gives us you know, like a way to process what's happening in real time. And I think, you know, my perspective, I sort of put on a pedagogical hat, which is that we have too much information not to make rapid progression forward because there's just too much now. But
0: I don't know that's a, that might not be a a spot on take. Mm. Cheryl, what were your thoughts on this?
1: A couple of things, Uh, mainly because I grew up in politics. So I, mm, how can I put this? I didn't expect some huge progression. Right. Like I, I that that's not what I expected. What I did expect are things that have come f- to fruition. So you see, remember that picture where Obama bends down and that little black boy feels the top of his head? That moment is when I think the Crown Act was born. Right, so the Crown Act here in the state of California says you can't discriminate against somebody because of their hair. Like you can wear your hair in dreads, you can wear your hair in braids, you can hear you wear your hair in bantu knots. So there's some things that are still going on because of, I think that that was the moment, right? That was the moment where the idea because hair is very, very important Within the Black community, especially Black women, right? So I I think that there are some things that we won't necessarily see right away that have come from it. I did not expect him to, you know, be as progr- progressive as mainly us because I'm a black woman in America. I know but there's only sometimes within an establishment how far. I can push things, right? And there becomes this, what do I push? What do I want to push? That that moment of, do I make this my fight? Do I make that my fight? Now, now, running Women of Color night, I make it all my fight. But uh, I, I think within that context of being the first one, so that, that's something that I just wanted to say because there are certain things that I think that we will continuously have an effect from those eight years, those eight years did not end. The cultural impact of it didn't end. So I I just wanted to make that like really clear because I think that in living in this country, there are still certain things that I I feel from his presidency. So I I think that that's really important to say as far as some of his policies, he's still a politician. Like, I grew up in politics, so he's still a politician. So, yes, there are going to be some things that we agree on, there are going to be some things we don't agree on, there are going to be policies of his that we're going to hate, there are going to be things that we're going to love. But I think the actual overall effect was that now with Sam, I do agree this whole thing about black excellence, right? Because that is actually psychologically damaging to. Any marginalized group, right? So even when I deal with people in Hollywood as far as moving the needle forward for women of color, I used to say that the idea, you know, we're 100 times better, 1,000 times better, we're dope, all of that type of stuff. And I realized that that was part of white supremacy. So now I say, I just want women of color to be able to be as mediocre as a white men and pay their bills, right? And when I say mediocre, people get really upset. I'm like, ah, median. Average. you have people who are better, you have people who are worse, right? I'm talking about that average. And so I think that that is, is something that both presidencies combined have made us realize, right? Like the, but during Obama, There was this idea of Black excellence and Black excellence. And then we had the next one. And we're like, y'all need to be that excellent to be president of the United States. Why do we? So I really think it was a combination of both that has sort of led to this explosion of, and it's not just Black Lives Matter, obviously, but this idea that, yeah, well, we're not going to work that hard. And it's not that we're going to work not going to work hard. It's just that we're not going to put ourselves in the grave to compete with people who are mediocre as, um, can't curse, but mediocre as F you, you get what I'm saying. So I I think that that's sort of the impact of of both. Um, When it comes to film specifically, there is this thing right now that is happening, even though everybody has all of these funds, Netflix has $100 million in this one, as friends of mine are out there pitching, it's very interesting because what they seem to be interested in is our trauma. And what we have found, and in talking to other people, because I do work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, is that white folks want to own our trauma. Just like anything else, whiteness wants to own us and they want to own our trauma. The one thing they can't own is our joy because that is actually in spite of whiteness. So there is this push right now. and We're not talking about films about black excellence. We're talking about films that celebrate black joy. And that is also an act of defiance. Right, because the, the people who are, think about all these films that have happened and some of them I had actually refused to watch. And then Clouds like, we're gonna talk about them. And I'm like, oh, I gotta watch that. I'm just gonna say it. when I watched um um Slim, that one, uh, I was like- the more comes
0: have- out on a second year about a Aquinas and the more kind of recent ones. But something you mentioned I wanna point upon, which is the idea of black excellence and performing black excellence through film. and cinema representation. I mean, of course, you know, the recognition by Hollywood of black people is one way which we funnel through this idea of excellence, you know, through the politics of recognition, the desire for recognition as well, how we map progress through representation in the broader mainstream um, of American life. And um, Lunray, thinking about your own work over the last 10 years around race in Hollywood, um, how significant was that Oscars? so white moment in 2016 and both highlighting the racism that was inherent within US film industry, but also society as well, but also advancing um, in the aftermath, this recognition of black filmmakers and actors as well.
3: Well, I think it was, there was something quite uh, predictable about it, in a way, in terms of the some of the immediate reaction. And it was definitely a moment when I suppose in the same way when Obama was elected there was a uh, you know incredible amounts of joy in that in that moment which you know may or may not have been able to co- be continued depending on what you think of his politics but uh, with Oscar So White there was also this moment of like hang on a minute this is <laughs> this seems to be a massive disconnect between what the academy is recognizing as an incredible film and what we are watching as as cinema goers I think some of the reactions to it have been have been incredibly superficial and I think that's why we saw it happened two years in a row, and that's why when it happened the second year, people were like, hang on a minute, are you not learning anything from this? Why mm. this, this is this a structural issue? I think we've seen, I think the idea of structural racism has moved from, from a kind of academic setting into the mainstream massively, part, in part because of things like Oscar Saw so White, where people understand that it is a systemic thing. It's not, it's not good enough to just stick some person, you know, at the head of the academy who's, uh, who's not white and think that's going to solve the problem. It's something that's a lot deeper, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve number one changing what the cohort of voters looks like but also changing which films are getting greenlit and which ones are being promoted in the Oscars campaign that's like such a specific thing like which film is Netflix going to chuck a load of money at is it going to be Dolomite is my name probably not or is it going to be the Irishman which you've just spent 133 million dollars on like it's basically taking racial race politics and putting it into a very kind of corporate commercial setting and asking people to make the right choice and traditionally that they've they've clearly not done that um yeah i think i think oscar so white's really important i think that's a really crucial moment but i was also thinking about this and i thought the sony hacks which came after that where you had executives emails being leaked in part from it was via north korea which i totally forgot about but that gave you an insight into the way that execs talk about black talent and there was a stuff about kevin hart there was a stuff about um whether or not Scott Rudin and Amy Pascal, who were, they were two um, important Sony figures, were going to ask Obama whether or not he liked The Butler and Django Unchained, and these these awful jokes that were obviously going on internally within Hollywood, and I think that, coupled with Oscar So White and the wider social movement of Black Lives Matter, etc., maybe that's what helped shift the needle. But I still, I don't know, I just thought, <laughs> I was thinking when when Moonlight won um, and they just completely messed up uh, you know, with uh, with Faye uh, Dunaway and Actually, you would, um, yeah, with, um there was something quite there was something poetic about that because it was this it was this obviously it deserved to win and it was an amazing film, but it also felt as if Hollywood was just getting ready to pat itself on the back and say, you know what, we did it. Look at what we're doing here. We've we've given this award to this film, it's a black film, and guess what? It's about it's about gay people as well. And I, I, I think Hollywood loves doing that. They did it with Parasite last year as well. You could I had a friend who was in the room when, when it won and they were like, Oh wow, we've given it to this, we've given it to a South Korean film and it's ephemeral it's it's not that's not the structural change we actually need so yeah i think it was an important moment and i think we are getting there but i think the work has only really just started if i'm being honest Mm -hmm.
0: it's interesting that um...
1: if i can jump in it's performative it's Mm. performative behavior there was a saying out of the 60s and my mother used to say this all the time don't break your arm patting yourself on the back and that is a really important saying i say it all the time now and and i actually know april rain who did hashtag oscar so white and even with this year and everything it, it just all feels like let's just hurry up and pat them on the head and maybe they'll quiet down yeah that ain't gonna happen oops that's, that's not gonna happen right it, it's not going to happen because you can't pat us on the head Anymore, and, and I absolutely agree. But the same year that we have something, you know, um, if Beale Street could talk, we had Green Book. I mean, give me a break. Right? And, and here's the funniest thing. I was on a panel at Sundance. It was not a Sundance official panel, but it was a Sundance panel. I said that I did not like Green Book. Don't you know somebody called me a racist? Because I said I did not like, and, and it's worse than that. It is a woman who started, and this is how it all ties in together. She started Cherry Picks, which is the equivalent to Rotten Tomatoes, except women, except it's a white woman. And because I said I did not like Green Book, she called me a racist. And and I actually mentioned it in an article, and people didn't believe me because I'm a Black woman, and sometimes people just don't believe you, but but I have received. And I actually dropped the video on Twitter of that actual incident. And then you think about, because this goes to Lon Ray's point about who gets to be the films that are put up for awards. And, and a lot of times it comes from critics. So even if you have this female critic-centric, the woman who started called me a racist, right? So, and and I've seen that happen. So, you know, I'm one of the producers of the documentary Dark Girls that deals in colorism. And we sold out at Toronto International Film Festival. Like People wanted to talk about it so much that the next film, they took us into the lobby. And there's a picture of the two directors, Bill Duke and Chan Barry, sitting on the steps and everybody is sitting down in the lobby because they felt such a need to discuss colorism. And white critics were like, oh, I don't know what this movie is about. This is horrible. Uh, We interviewed Dr. Cheryl Grills, who at the time was head of the Black Psychologist in the U.S. And she's a tenured professor at LMU. And in the actual review, it says some doctor as this Black woman, right? So that is really important. One of the push that we have is at all these film festivals, getting our uh, Afro-Latinx, Latinx-Asian uh, critics in the room so that their reviews will count as much because that's been the other part. Film festivals have traditionally left off marginalized people as far as critics, because you have to have this or you have to have, you know, the qualification. Well, the qualifications are meant to keep us out and that's all done on purpose. So yes, Lonnie, you're absolutely right, it, but it, it is so systemic and systematic, right? And then we hear what happened with the Hollywood foreign press and the fact they don't have any black people. And then what was it, The Promising Young Woman? I think it was that movie that paid for something. Like this has been going on for years, for years. But it's part of the total. Racism and sexism and all the other isms have existed within corporate America for years. I don't know why people, I think because Hollywood is seen as liberal, but it's something that we know. I'm an independent filmmaker because the kind of content I wanna do, nobody else wants to do. I mean, Dark Girls was a huge hit and yet we could not get a distribution deal. It ended up being Oprah Winfrey put us on the network and I think we're still one of the highest rated documentaries ever on her network, but it took, Oprah, because I mean, we sold out at Toronto International Film Festival. Normally, anybody who does that and had the kind of reception that we had would have gotten a distribution deal like that. And it took us a year later of trying to get a distribution deal and it was actually oprah who put us on the network so everything that Ray is talking about everything that celebrates us everything that talks about us that doesn't have to do i'm just gonna say it with slavery (sighs) like people just don't they say that there's not an audience but we know that that's bs because the latest study they leave 10 billion dollars on the table. I know with the disabled community and the work that I do with them, they leave $1 trillion. So this idea that we just have to be really good and they're gonna come along, give us a deal. I kept telling people, white Trump's green.
0: Interesting you actually mentioned Trump in there, uh, which kind of brings nicely to my next question for Sam. Just thinking about what has been said both by Sheryl um, and Lundray, and if we accept that 2016, also so, so well, was the dramatic turning point in race relations, specifically in the film industry, but broadly in America as well. And then you see these films emerge as a response made to Trumpism, be it Green Book, Black Panther, Bill Street Couture, Black Klansman which were all very, very successful in the Academy Awards in 2019. Um, In what ways do you think, Sam, that these films and their success as well um, spoke to the politics of race uh, within Trump's America?
2: So I I think they offer easy talking points in the culture wars because Trump during his presidency sort of fully leaned into culture war through the use of racist white nationalists. Um, Any piece of cultural production that was birthed in that environment was a political object from the jump. I mean, not to say that outside of Trump that wouldn't be true as well, but I think like um, there's things that these films share in common with um, just the history of classic Hollywood that's just the recycling of certain tropes. There are things that these films share in common that are about like sort of explicitly desettling those tropes. So like all of the films de-center whiteness in different ways, they center blackness in different ways. They mostly treat the politics of race uh, as subjected to a system of white supremacy um, with the exception of Black Panther. And that's a sort of Afrofuturistic sort of, I, I don't know if we want to put it in the black excellence box as well, but I, I do see, I see a film like Black Panther as a little bit different. I see a film like Moonlight um, as one of the rare films, you know, it's starting to change now, but that's doing intersectional work. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these films, I agree with what Cheryl was saying. A lot of these films are just like, Let's look at the trauma of the Black experience and feel bad about it. Assign the heroes, assign the the villains. You know, I saw Judas and the Black Messiah last week and I was not moved. Like, I love the actor. I love the, I mean, the story of Fred Hampton. I've been wondering for decades. When are we going to see the story of Fred Hampton on, you know, meaningfully told in the culture? And it was meaningfully told, but I'm not sure that anything beyond portraying the Black Panthers in a positive light sort of in, you know, mass media. I'm not sure what else it's doing other than giving us another biopic that highlights Black trauma. So I'm not sure how much more activated we need to be as a people. But, you know, there's a there's a market principle at work here, and, and these films are getting produced because there's always going to be an audience of some sort.
0: It's interesting you actually mentioned um, Juice and the Black Messiah*, which we'll come on to shortly later, that um, in one of the reviews for the film, uh, the African... American political organizer, Akin Ola, suggested that, and I quote, while Judas and the Black Messiah does a better job by far than most, its downplaying of Hamilton's Marxist-Leninist politics does him and the larger American left-wing movement a disservice. Uh, So we've seen this real strong interaction between what happens on screen in black film and the the broader politics of race uh, within America. That feels kind of obvious to
2: me, though. That feels like like there is a bound, There's a demarcation of what kind of black politics we can have on the mainstream screen. Like I just feel like that we're never going to see. I mean, look at look at what you know. Look at the the discourse on the right towards anything remotely socialistic or Marxist. I mean, there's just you know, there's an attack machine ready to pounce. So if you're sitting in the boardroom of Sony Pictures or whoever made that film, you're gonna de-emphasize those bits, right? Like. But that is, I'm not surprised by that. I don't know, what do you guys think?
0: Mm. Landry? what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I think it—I think it's really interesting. I think we're starting to have that, we're starting to see that, uh, have that same conversation in, in the UK. Um, I was thinking of Small Axe, the, the Steve McQueen series and how essentially in there you have quite a lot of black radical thought weaved into it. Or certainly that's the starting point for anyone who wants to jump off and actually see what these people were actually talking about in the, in the 70s and 80s. And it's about, primarily it's about organisation by uh, grassroots level, by black groups, primarily, well, in London, during the 60s and 70s, um, Caribbean groups who were being oppressed essentially by the state and the state apparatus. And it's taken until, you know, 2020 for us to see something like that on, on a British screen. Um, I think there's a reason for that. And that plays into a larger political debate. Sorry, I'm talking about the UK. Obviously, we should talk about America, but I don't want to embarrass myself by talking about things I don't know about. But I find, I think it, I think it's fascinating and I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm, of the list that you, uh, sorry, the films that you listed, Clive, for me, I'm much more interested in films like Get Out and Sorry to Bother You, uh, maybe Blind Spotting as well, maybe even more than a documentary like The 13th. I feel as if that film is made for a white audience. Mm, I think it knows the audience is going to talk you through something which I think a lot of people who are involved in the culture understand the context of and don't need the hand holding through it Um, whereas if you look at a documentary like Time I felt that was that's really interesting and really exciting and I think it's part of this new wave of stuff which is taking an issue like the criminal justice system in America and completely reverse engineering and going you know what we're going to make this about a family and I was waiting all the way through that film for the moment in which the, the scene comes where the, the main character is confronted about the fact she took part in, a, in an armed robbery, and it didn't happen. It wasn't, it wasn't about the good and evil. It was about, look, this is what happens to your life when you go through this system. And I think there's a, there's a spate of films that are doing that, coming from, a, a, from America at the moment, from black filmmakers, that are, that are sidestepping that easy route through, you know, whether it's, I'm not gonna name the filmmakers because I, I don't want them to, to hate me forever, but that are not going down that route of like, Black trauma. We let's push some buttons, uh, and it and it fits into that thing I was talking about at the beginning of like from a British perspective, thinking you understand America because you get emotional when you're seeing a Sam Cooke or something. I don't know. It, it ties into this idea of it's a kind of static idea of of African Americans who are just these poor people who were you know under under the the foot of this kind of massive monster that's on top of them and they can't really do anything about it. And I think that there's filmmakers coming through and saying, well, that's messed up, but actually this is the way we're moving, and it's. I think that stuff's far more interesting and I'm far more engaged with it. So yeah, more biopics about Black Panthers that are completely diluted isn't really what I want to see. I'd be much more interested in like, a, you know, a documentary about the school system in Tampa or something. I don't know, like something that really gets into it. Interesting because what I'm hearing
0: from all three of you is this dichotomy or separation within what we can describe loosely um, or in a more concise sense is Black American film between what we call as black trauma or black healing narratives i green book others as well and i guess what you describe is kind of racial agitation such as you know get out sorry to bother you films that try and really get to the marrow of race and racism in america but primarily for a black audience from a black perspective now let's try and nuance that for a second and I remember being in America whilst I was on a sabbatical at Columbia and um, watching uh, Queen and Slim in the Williamsburg cinema and um, on Grand Street on a Friday evening and there was an overwhelmingly black audience in that cinema and there being this really muted atmosphere um, when the film concluded Almost of this the audience wasn't quite sure how to respond to that film and to the images be them images of black death or black celebration or the overall ethos of the film. And I got involved in a lot of debates with people who I was with in America um, about the film. And they referred me to a tweet by the African-American film critic, uh, Valerie Complex in November, 2019, in response to the criticism leveled at her for her quite negative perspective on the film. And as she states in the tweet, Too much pressure is put on black film critics to protect black art, and we have to realise that. There are films within the last two years I kept shut about because I was afraid of losing connections or access. And she goes on to say, this isn't fair. Is there an issue here, in the one hand, where we try to support the anti-racist movements in the U.S., within which film becomes a very, very powerful tool for, but does that also curtail the ability of filmmakers, journalists, critics as well, to support or criticize black film from an objective perspective, because it it just associates itself with the broader progressive politics um, of black America. Is this a big issue? Um, Cheryl? Yeah,
1: I mean, obviously it's like, uh... Uh, Issa Rae says I'm rooting for everything Black, right? So we want to root for everything Black, except everything Black isn't good, right? Everything Black isn't good, not only is it not just good, meaning good art, it's also not good for us it's not good for the rest of the world to see us it's not good what what i found very interesting about all the films that you mentioned are these are films in the mainstream i'm an independent filmmaker so there are films on urban tv and all of these other smaller platforms that do celebrate joy but that's not what you see right that's not what the rest of the world sees uh, I never really wanted to watch Queen and Slim. And I was like, when you sent me the movies, I was like, okay. So I watched Queen and Slim. I was like, can I have two hours of my life back? And then I watched Harriet and I was like, can I watch Queen and Slim again? <sighs> so, um, and look, Valerie Complex is, she's a member of Women of Color Unite. I follow her. I love her perspective. Uh, and, it, and it is tough for Black critics, especially for Black female critics, or, or women of color in general, because there's this idea that you want to root for everything Black, and yet something tells you that, yeah, that yeah, it's either not good, or in a lot of cases, good for us. And when I say for us, I mean as, as a culture, what we're putting out in the world, I don't want to see Black people getting shot, period. End of story. Why? Because we all have them in our family. If you are an ascendant, descendant of slaves, you have that in your family, right? I remember growing up and there was a story about one of my relatives who was driving a fancy, schmancy car and got pulled over for a speeding ticket and committed suicide, right? These are stories that I grew up with. So I've been pulled over driving while black. And the police officer was so angry that he couldn't find anything on me. The next thing I know, he was a motorcycle cop. I had four more police officers, two cop cars. And I'm just saying to myself, Cheryl, keep your mouth shut. Cheryl, keep your mouth shut. I was three blocks from home. And my mother was alive at the time, but she wasn't feeling well. And I was like, keep your mouth shut so you can get home. All of these types of things we've all experienced. Practically every Black person I know, male or female, has been pulled over driving while Black, right? These experiences that I have, sometimes I just want to go to the movies and watch content that celebrates our joy. Because here's the thing that incident did happen to me. That is not the extent of who I am. That was a day in my life. For the majority of the time, I celebrate back to I'm happy. Right. I'm happy hanging out with my friends. I'm happy making content, reading scripts, and now being on Clubhouse and, or, and, and I'm an educator and educating kids and all of that. My life is riddled in joy. And that's, I'd like to see more of that. So, yes, Queen and Slim, but, but Queen and Slim is just, it's, it's, I'm just going to say it like I, like everybody else. I root for Lena Waith as a, filmmaker, as a content creator, as a storyteller. I do not root for that film at all, right? And again, and then you made me watch Harriet, and I will never forgive you for that, Clyde. I'm just saying.
0: I've watched Harriet too, so I'm with you on that as well. Um, Sam, I mean, what we're hearing here is a kind of illogical tension where film, black film becomes the locus of that. Was that your feelings as well with the public response to Queen of the Sim, it seemed to divide perspectives within the black imagination?
2: Well, I think we've been conditioned for so long to have to receive black film as like statement cinema, right? Like there's some statement being attached here. And um, I'm just gonna plagiarize from like some notes I wrote from your later question and I hope I don't ruin this, but like, You asked an interesting question about like, where where could black film go? And like, I always think like we need to, first of all, Cheryl's point is right. Like we need to be able to embrace the spectrum of of quality for black filmmakers in the same way that white filmmakers have been able to have for so long, right? There's mediocre, there's fantastic, there's you shouldn't be making films. That's what we want. But I also think that part of it is being able to transcend or appropriate when necessary this idea of needing to make a statement um, to be more aesthetic, to be more in pursuit of something that's like like popular appeal. I don't know, like there are ways in which we can just, to me, it's about the landscape starting to shift, right? Like we're, you know, Ray made the great point about sort of systems thinking being the, the kind of really radical thing happening right now. And and I I really believe that it's this critical literacy development that's just happening with us sort of passively. We have this, um, I wrote down in response to something Cheryl was saying earlier that like, We are, you know, with Oscars So White, with Me Too, with Black Lives Matter, with all these movements, we create this historical record of critical literacy into structural injustice in the United States and around the world. And so like, we have these steps that keep leading us inexorably in one direction. So I don't think it's gonna go back. But I think when I think about like, what is the political weight cloud here? It's about actually recognizing that that that's always a part of the black filmmaker and film experience but really understanding how we can start to get to that normative space for Black film to do whatever it want without being questioned. Like to me, Queen and Slim, yeah, fine, it's what it is. But like it was, you know, there are dozens of films made every year just like that, that do not have a Black auteur or do not have Black stars that are received well or just received without being sort of placed into that Black narrative, Black statement box.
0: Lanre, um, as a journalist who writes a lot about Black film in American context, a British context, um, have you seen, felt that pressure to be responding positively to films that you may not think are particularly good for, for different reasons?
3: Yeah, I had I an had uh, interesting incident at uh, Sundance, the year when Birth of a Nation premiered there, uh, the Nate Parker film about Nat Turner and the, and the, and the slave revolt. And we'd done a lot of stuff in the build-up about how this is a really important film. Manchester by the Sea was in that conversation as well. And then the Oscar So White thing happened. Um, so I think it was 2015, I think I'm right in saying that. Maybe it's 2016, I can't remember. Anyway, so the, the dynamic at the festival changed and a lot of focus was on Birth of a Nation. And I was, at the, I was at the premiere, got a standing ovation, and I went out and, and wrote a two-star review and got hammered for it online. And people remember Ashley Clark, who you know, Clive, he tweeted me and he was like, have you seen what they're saying? And like, I looked at one of the tweets and the guy was like, the Guardian have sent this white guy to review Birth of a Nation and he says it's no good. And it was like, well, because it wasn't very good. And interestingly, obviously the, the kind of what happened next with, with, with Nate Parker was people dug in. It was past obviously, and they found out about the incident at college where he was um, accused of rape. And then all of a sudden that film became untouchable by white critics. But I remember vividly being in JFK airport, we'd flown back from Sundance, we're in the airport, it was me and two other critics, they were both white, and I was talking to, talking to one about them, we were talking about the films that we enjoyed during the week, and I said that I didn't like Birth of a Nation, and this person was like, you just don't get it, because you're not American. And I was like, I get it, because I know about film, and I know that film was no good, so that's my critical opinion, and I'm gonna give you it, and I don't care what you think, <laughs> but it was amazing being schooled on race by a white person, because they just, said you don't get it this film's important so therefore we need to back it so i think those pressures exist for more than just black critics and i think well that's a slightly different thing is it because i think sometimes with white critics they'll go along with a, with an opinion of a film because they want to be on the right side of history uh, whereas for maybe for black critics there's a pressure to support film because i think primarily because there's been such a dearth of it historically so when films do come along the instinct is to want to support like i wanted to like birth of a nation I don't go in there thinking, I want to hate this film because it's about blackness. Like, no, I want to be entertained and I want to think it's good. But if I don't think it's good, um, I think historically I'm I'm quite proud of myself. I haven't pulled my punches and I've said what I've believed. It's just that the the reaction you get to it can be very, very hostile. And people say you're a white person. So, yeah, it's (laughs) that was that was a fascinating incident. It really showed me like the way that something like Oscars So White can just fire into a film's narrative and push it along. And people in Hollywood would just go with it. <laughs> they, they, won't, they won't be like, this film's not good. They'll just go along with it and be like, even though Arnie Hammer, like he's playing the most one dimensional, evil white person you've ever seen in your life. You'll just go along with it. It's, It was a revelation. So yeah, I think there is that pressure, but I think it exists for more than just Black critics, if that makes sense. It
0: does. And um, again, even as an audience member, as an academic, uh, watching Harriet in uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music while I was there, and experiencing and seeing a similar sense of i'm not quite sure how i should respond to this i'm not quite sure how i'm meant to respond to this given the politics of race and inclusion within which the film was heavily embedded in and that brings us um to this question about what happens next as sam alluded to and one of the things that we're seeing is happening next is representation and inclusion standards by the academy as a political intervention. Now, can we think about this as a political intervention into politics of race being one of the other identities actually the um, policy uh, speaks to? How do you think this can or will impact uh, black African American representation in Hollywood? Uh, Cheryl, let's begin with you.
1: Well, I, I actually talked to you about that because you had done the studies on what is happening with that since we adopted it, meaning we, uh, the US uh, Oscars. Uh, here's what I know. I know that white people are trying to do everything that they could possibly do to stay in power. That's what I know. And what I mean by that is they're going to institute anything, Mm. Uh, without actually doing research, without actually doing study. I mean, the BAFTAs have had it two years. I read what we discussed it at Toronto International Film Festival. They could have just asked you. So I, I, I I think that white folks are gonna do anything they can do to stay in power. They're going to pat us on the head. They're gonna come up with any diversity, equity, and inclusion program. And here is the problem with those they otherize people. And when you otherize somebody, you dehumanize them. It's what we call exclusion by familiarity. Uh, Gregory Zeidt, actually the white guy who who works at Women of Color Unite, he came up with it. And which is basically that people hire people who look like them, who are in their circle, so forth and so on, right? But in that familiarity is the otherization. And anotherization is a dehumanization. So you can put in any freaking policy that you want, but it's still going to otherize people. It's still going to dehumanize them. It is still going to be something special that they have to do as opposed to just doing it. And I know because we, we worked with the Casting Society of America and came up with something called Reimagine Casting, a non-white paper. And it talks about all of these issues in casting and who they cast for the leads and you know colorism is a huge problem sizeism is a huge problem ableism is a huge problem here's the other thing that i'm going to say about bipoc is that bipoc filmmakers are not immune to the other isms and unless we tackle them all at the exact same time because society has told us okay so white women now you and the black people now you and nothing much has changed not i mean obviously the right to vote those sorts of changes but that's systematic systemic change so me I've read, you know, all of these various institutions in Hollywood now who are coming up with all of these various diversity, equity and inclusion programs. Uh, how about you just get some BIPOC on your board? Cause then it'll change. How about you get more BIPOC who are watching the Oscars? How about you do, how about we make the board of directors, the CEO, the C-suite much more diverse? right? Because statistics tell us in the state of California, when a company is run by a woman of color, profits go up by as much as 30%. So why aren't more women of color running companies in the state of California? We're the only ones who don't need a diversity, equity, and inclusion program because we hire the way the world works. We do it in our filmmaking to a large extent. So I I just, I'm just sus. Here's the last thing. Why do we constantly expect the oppressor to help the oppressed? The Academy has been oppressing films for years. I don't care that a Black woman is in charge of it. We're talking about the system and the way the system is set up. It's the same thing that our statistics tell us that women of color. Uh, when people say that they can't find any women of color, what they're really talking about is union, because all those studies are based on union films. And we realize only 10% of women of color working in Hollywood today belong to a union, a trade organization, or a guild, which is healthcare, a decent wage, and networking. All of those things. That's what we need to conquer. And so some. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Program. And look, I, I'm the one who tweets out to all of those programs, I want your money. Because in a year, I got a 1,000 women of color unite. We got a 1,000 women of color in the room. So this idea of trauma essays and pipelines and stuff, just shut up and hire us. Like, just stop. Just stop and hire us. I, so i'm I'm just sus. and look, I never, I don't expect the oppressor to help the oppressed, right? The, what I what what I agree with you, Clive, about um Judas and the Black Messiah, Sam, um what you were talking about, and in this idea, you know, not having enough Marxism, what whatever it is, socialism, so forth and so on. The fact is, as somebody who fights all day long, every day with these studios. I can tell you they're trying to do just the incremental thing, just enough to make us happy, right? That feels very much like a pat on the head. And then, then obviously, then they wanna break their arms, patting themselves on the back, like they did something for little Negroes. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. As Dr. Cheryl Grill says in Dark Girls, I'm good, you keep that. I fight for true equity, diversity, and inclusion, this performative, now I'm going curse, this performative bullshit, is not, nobody's gonna stand for it anymore. They're gonna fall on their faces and they're gonna turn around and go, oh, but we didn't know what to do. And then they'll weaponize their tears. And you know what, I've been down this road before. I've been in Hollywood for 30 years. I've been a filmmaker for 30 years. I know all the programs, I've looked at them, all of that kind of stuff. So here's what I say, sit your down, actually get people, filmmakers who are truly inclusive to judge films to run shit. that is what is going to change right i have a bunch of you know you may have a black head and then you but the entire board is white oh come on give me a break we can see through that right and i think that that, that is what is happening now and that's why there's there's all of this sort of stuff in the air where people just trying to figure it out it's because they're trying to stay in power Right, but allyship, allyship isn't about putting Black Lives Matter or hashtags. Oscar, so white. Allyship is about giving something up. That's allyship.
0: Goodness, Sam, um, is this a political intervention or performative BS? Uh, it's a political intervention, and
2: it's deeply political, which is okay. And I think it's gonna shift cultural production to a potentially new normative consensus on how race can be and should be represented across visual media, or it might not because the people who are in charge don't want that to happen. So, you know, I think I think struggle is the name of the game. I agree. Like I have a Frarian perspective. I completely with you, Cheryl, the oppressors cannot liberate the oppressed, right? We've got to do it for ourselves. And there's no going back. Like there, there will be shifts in power, but there is, I think, a dominant narrative about structural injustice, um, about intersectional justice that needs to be attended to, particularly in the United States. And it is being attended to at different institutions across the country. And it's being expressed sort of almost incessantly and unceasingly in the culture. Um, one of the studies I'm doing right now is just trying to get a sense of you know, how do we conceptualize social justice across each of these social media platforms? What does it look like? Right. And so I think there's a lot out there. I think I think we really need to understand that that when we think about films, they are one, I would probably argue along with the other people here that of the most important sort of aspects of cultural production that we can really analyze in terms of how it moves the culture shifts zeitgeist. But there's so many that we're just constantly getting certain types of You know we're getting taught every day certain types of things about what we should think about the Black experience and I'm happy because we are also being forced to be critical about this always and that's part of our horrible Twitter politics but there's I think there's a really good element to that.
0: Lanre it's interesting because we are talking right now in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of the Oscar nominations and we saw the highest number of nominations for Black acting talent since um, 2017, ironically, the year after Oscars So White. Um, obviously, 190 Miami, Moraine's Black Bottom,
3: uh, Judas
0: and Black Messiah, um, all films have been hailed as potential Oscar winners. So are we seeing Hollywood almost preempting the diversity standards by responding to this immediate need for representation?
3: Well, I, I mean, for me, I think it's important to remember that this isn't a normal year. Um, there's been a global pandemic and you know, I was, at, I was at Venice this year where One Night in Miami premiered and, uh, you know, we did a piece on how that was the first time an African-American woman has ever had a film at Venice. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I think it shows that there's, you know, we know the historical progress has been horrific. It has been glacial. I'm just, maybe I'm just getting cynical now. I think I'm just getting old and cynical, but I just feel as if the proof in the pudding is going to be where we are in maybe in five years. You know, is this a pattern that is sustainable? Because we all know that you know one swallow doesn't make a summer, and historically Hollywood's done the absolute minimum, and it has ignored a lot of these voices. I think it's great that Regina King's making a film. I think maybe that you could attribute that to being a byproduct of Oscar So White, but she's also had an amazing run in the world of TV, which is a something we've not even talked about. You know, she's she did Watchmen, had this huge kind of increase in, um, in profile, and that's probably helped her get to you know do a film like One Night in Miami. Although again, if you want to be critical. Think about that film, it plays into what we talk about at the beginning about the classic narrative about African American life, and that is, you know, Sam Cooke and Malcolm X in a room, you know, the night before Muhammad Ali fights. It's like, it's great, it's brilliant, and it, I liked it. It's a good film, and I like the, the play a lot more, but it's the kind of film that the can press go on and be quite happy with themselves. And by they, I mean Hollywood. Uh, and maybe we've seen a little bit of that with uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom as well. We haven't spoken about um, Chadwick Borsman, but I think the re- reaction to him as well, that's the kind of I think he's the kind of talent that Hollywood is, is comfortable falling over. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I thought he was an amazing actor. But, you know, that, there was something a little bit disingenuous about some of that response, in my opinion. You know, people falling over themselves to talk about how, how brilliant it was and how great it was. And it was absolutely fantastic. But I felt, again, it, kept, it fell into that category of like Hollywood patting itself on the back. So for me, I've reported on this stuff five years ago in depth. I think the proof in the pudding is going to be in a couple of years when we move back towards a more normal release schedule where maybe studios are turning around and saying, OK, we've got these standards that are in place. But we both know, Clive, from the reporting that you've done and the reporting that I've done, is that there are cynical people who will exploit loopholes in those systems and they will make excuses and they will interpret them in incredibly creative ways to avoid being diverse. And, um, yeah, I think that I don't think that's me being cynical. I think that's, that's the reality. I think it's good that they put them in place. But again, like with the awards and the, and the kind of distribution uh, to diverse talent, it, the proof will be in the pudding. It will be in a couple of years' time. I think we've, it, it's, it's too easy to turn around and pat BAFTA on the back and go, you've magically, after 50 years of not doing it, installed these changes to your, to your voting patterns and all of a sudden you've got this diverse batch of films and well done and that's it, you've cracked it now because we could turn around next year and, and that will, might not be the case, genuinely. It's... Really interesting
0: that you mention about um, what happens in three years, four years time, because it's a great way to conclude this fascinating discussion by posing a particular question to you all, which is if we can think about what we could classify as the Obama black excellence, yes, we can film to be categorical about these things. If we can think about what we could classify as the anti-Trump film, be that a black Klansman or a blind spotting or anything else. What can we expect now in this Biden area, both in terms of the racial politics that may emerge in the next four or so years, but equally in the films that will respond to them? What will the Biden area, black film look like? Cheryl? Uh,
1: one thing I just wanted to say to to Lamry's point, um, when it comes to I'm all, whenever they put in one of these programs, a lot of times it's women of color who get screwed, right? In this whole 50-50 by 2020, as a, you know, people talking about the idea of, of hitting gender parity, except that it wasn't taken away from white guys. It wasn't even taken away from men of color. They stayed the same. It was directly linked to women of color, uh, specifically black women, having less opportunities and being less seen. It, even with the disability, uh, community, and the numbers have gone up. The representation of women of color with disabilities zero point zero percent. Gina Davis Institute just came up with it. So me personally, I'm always sus because it's never something taken away because of of sexism and racism. It's not taken away from white women. It's not taken away from uh, men of color. It's always on our backs. So, when I talk about it, I'm talking about statistically speaking, it's always something that's taken away from us. I think where we're going, it, look, it, it's a fight every day and the companies are trying to figure it out. Content creators are trying to figure it out. Storytellers are trying to figure it out. We're all trying to figure it out because here's what I know. Picking white supremacy out of your brain and out of your soul takes work every day. It's every single day. So for us to continue to move forward, and I think that there will be fits and starts and stops and all, and all of that. But I am very excited about the content the friends of mine, um, BIPOC filmmakers, are trying to make. The only thing is that I know that they're having a very, very tough time making it right now because of the kind of content that those in power want to find. That's what I am I'm hearing from my friends who are out there pitching because, you know, with all of these funds and everything. So I'm just sus. <laughs> like I'm just, I'm just sus of the entire racist, sexist, ableist, sizes, colorist, homophobic, ageist institution. But the interesting thing is, this is what I do know. And doing hashtag start with aid Hollywood though the institutions themselves are steeped in all of the isms. There are people out there who understand that they have been part of it, who want to do better, who are willing to give up something. If not, I'd have never gotten a 1,000 women of color in less than a year in the room. And when I say I mean women of color unite because I do not do this by myself. But on the other hand, I can't get anybody to fund us. Right, Hollywood is like, no, not you, um, because of all of that. So yes, there's this fight, there's this thing going on. Lastly, I'm gonna leave you with this, when we did uh hashtag start with eight uh, we sent out a form after the first time, because remember Twitter movement through, like we put it together. 76% of the women said what it gave them was hope. That's why I do this every day. That is the fight that I do every day. And that's why when I call out institutions, when I tell you you are sexist, when I tell you you're racist, because I'm fighting for the mental health of women of color, specifically black women, because we know the statistics with black women, dark skinned women in the intersection thereof. So in general, uh, we're going to keep fighting that good fight. (laughs) Like I'm a traditional film. Like I'm just going to keep fighting a good fight and uh, rallying the allies. And here's the thing, Hollywood, watch out, because either step up or step off.
0: Sam, next three, four years, do you see a similar thing?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think Cheryl put it beautifully. Um, and I'm not sure that I could add much more except to say that my gut tells me that things are going to get more aggressive. That we have, in the last four years, birthed, you know, a political core, not birthed, actually, maybe sort of, released from the cocoon of 20, 30 years of Fox News propaganda, this sort of demented butterfly of right-wing hatred and reactionism to what what I'll just call social justice culture, for lack of a better term, but social justice culture being this monolith that can be attacked. Um, And I just think we can't discount the power of those voices, the platforms they have, the way in which they can not only react to black culture and other forms of intersectional culture, but create their own forms. And I don't know, it just, it feels tense. I'd be curious to hear what others think, but it just feels like we're gonna keep making our art in our communities. People of color are gonna make their art and we're gonna keep working within the systems that are now being increasingly recognized as structurally flawed, structurally violent. And we're gonna try to affect change and that's gonna be glacial, which is sort of always the way it is. But I do feel like there is this energy that has to be responded to in, in some real way. Um, and I feel like it's generative on both sides. Like our energy is a righteous one, but it's, um, there's anger. And, and, and so I'm just curious to see how that manifests itself in film.
0: Mm. Lanre, do you see that energy manifesting in film?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this in relation to Obama to think back to the first point and the idea that you had this kind of Obamaism and Black excellence. And, you know, we saw that play out in stuff like um, South Side with You, which I've not seen and I've got no intention of seeing, where they had this kind of personality cult and this presentation of Black excellence and how Obama kind of embodied it. But then running alongside that, you had this rich theme of films like Precious, Pariah, uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Fruitvale, Moonlight, Tangerine you know, films that seem to kind of proceed and predict things like Trayvon Martin or Eric Garner, some of the some of the issues that played out when I was in America from 2014 to 2017. And I feel like it almost doesn't matter who's in the White House, in a sense. There's always going to be this thing that runs along parallel to it. And black filmmakers are always going to dip into an energy that exists beyond the mainstream. Probably people that Cheryl's working with and trying to fund and the people that Sam was talking about as well. I, I, I feel this idea of, you know, when Biden got in, there was this kind of outtake of breath and like, oh, you know, at least we're going back to normal. It's like normal got us here. Do you know what I mean? Normal got us to this point. And I feel like it, whether it's in documentary, whether it's in narrative, whatever, I feel filmmakers, filmmakers understand that normal isn't good enough anymore. So, yes, Netflix might want to fund a certain type of film. Yes, Amazon might want to film, fund that certain type of film, which plays into some of the issues that Cheryl talked about before, whether it's this kind of black trauma. But I feel as if there are there's a there's such a kind of rich seam of underground black filmmakers in America now. We were just in a completely different conversation. In the same way that you know the people who made Pariah were in a completely different conversation to Obamaism and what that was. I feel like they're going to continue making making those films. I I don't want to say content because I hate that, and we're going to continue watching them. And whether they'll be kind of big, major, mainstream success, I think it's possible. I think if Moonlight could win an Oscar, like anything is possible. Genuinely, that is a film that. Before, I don't think anyone would have backed that before. Before the before the Oscars, you know, a film that was made for like two million quid in Miami about you know a black gay guy like that's unheard of. So I'm optimistic. Actually, I feel like the culture is going to continue to produce brilliant films that truly are black excellence, not in a kind of weird corporate sense, but in in the sense that carries on the traditions that we all probably know and love. So yeah, I'm I'm optimistic about black filmmaking. Not so much about Biden, but that's a different issue.
0: Goodness, Um, a fantastic way to um, end what's been an amazing uh, conversation, discussion, dialectic, how we describe what's been talking about for the last hour. Thank you hugely, Cheryl, Lanre and Sam for um, a wonderful um, episode four of um, The Politics of Race in American Film. Thanks so much to Lanre Beccari, Cheryl Bedford, and Sam in this episode. As we can see, it's very difficult to disentangle popular black cinema in America from the context within which it's produced and the ways that politics, gender, class, and their intersections affect depictions of race on screen and the ways in which they're circulated, enjoyed, and critiqued. Join us next time when we'll wrap up this series and look at what we've learned about the politics of race in American film. This podcast is production by The Ballpark, the LSE US Centre's podcast for understanding American politics. This episode was produced by Chris Gilson, Michaela Herman, and myself, Dr. Clive Lewonka. The politics of race in American film is supported by the LSE's Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Centre or the London School of Economics. To find out more about the LSE US Centre and our work, you can go to lsc.ac.uk forward slash united states or follow us on twitter at lsc underscore us thanks for listening and we'll see you next time